With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show, and I have an unbelievable interview. Uh, I was international a couple weeks ago because of my good friend Max uh, in Australia, and somehow I even have another superstar, but more, I guess, a superstar in the United States, but worldwide also. But I know everyone wants to learn some of his story and his brother, so I'm excited to welcome the program Cody Walker. His brother was Paul Walker from the Fast and Furious brand, and also Cody's from Reach Out Worldwide. Cody, thanks for calling. How are you? Hey, Neil. Thanks a lot. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. uh, It's 2.54 in the morning on Easter Sunday, and I said, you know what? I am (laughs) dedicated as a journalist, and I wanted to chat with you. So let's kind of talk really quickly about, Cody, you and your brother growing up. He, he Did he always want to be an actor? And were you in some way, even though you didn't start out in acting, want to do it as well? You know, it's funny you ask. Uh, so, Paul, as, as with all the Walker kids, we all grew up uh, acting, um, auditioning, uh, going out on commercials. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny. It's, it's something that Paul is always so naturally good at. Um, you know, he just, he was such a, he just had such a natural light, you know, to him that he brought into a room and, um, you know, he, uh, he enjoyed acting. Um, but for him, it was also a means to, you know, just kind of be a surf bum, to be honest with you. Uh, he jokes about it. You joke about it all the time, you know, it kind of, uh, it kind of just something that he was naturally good at that he didn't necessarily think that, uh, would one day ultimately lead him to, you know, where he was in life. But, um, you know, he, he, he utilized him to, um, to really get involved with, uh, other things that he really enjoyed, um, you know, ocean conservation. And of course, uh, charity reach out worldwide that he funded on his, own that, that, uh, responds to natural disasters all over the world. Um, myself, you know, I was a theater kid and, uh, drama. I did all that, uh, some commercials myself as a child. And, um, we did take a different path in life with Eric and Morgan and, uh, fast seven, um, you know, the, the Paul's passing, uh, ultimately got pulled back into the industry. And, um, that's just kind of, that's kind of where I'm at now. It's, uh, it's not something that I necessarily uh, regarding that. So in, in a way, why did you stop acting and moving into more another profession while your brother continued to uh, do what you, you said he was doing? Yeah. You know, what? I, I, I uh, you know, I mean, you remember what it's like being little. That's kind of get more exposed to things. Uh, I, so many interests, uh, things I like. I think a big part of really what took me maybe in a different direction is my mom went to one was around uh, eight or nine years old, and she a nurse, a registered nurse. Uh, by the time I was around twelve, uh, I continued um, to do acting until uh, high school, uh, but. I, from her classes and her studies and, you know, the medical side of things really my attention. I thought it was so interesting. And um, I, that really wouldn't surface in my life until after college when I, when I realized, you know, I want to go back for the world to be my office. <laughs> that was such a, such a, such a, to, uh, 
to to be involved. And then my mom, you know, she's she's the most caring woman, sweet lady in the world. And um, I definitely think that my mother's influence ended up going later in life. Wow, interesting. And so, Cody, you're so you went on to become. Uh, what was your profession again for our listeners out there that might not know? Uh, I was a I was a paramedic. Mm-hmm. Okay, paramedic. I worked on an ambulance. Wow, that's got to be that's got to be something that absolutely is an adrenaline rush itself, isn't it? At d- times, Ab- yeah, absolutely. You know, I I I clock into work not knowing, you know, twenty four hour shift was going to be, and you know, I I think that's uh just something that I wanted to do. I, I never saw myself working a nine to five job in an office. <laughs> I wanted to be out and about and just you know, I, I thrive on um adrenaline. Like I, I'm a full and uh you know I feel like I feel like a pressure on focus the best and I think that really helped me as a you know in the medical services profession absolutely okay so cody let's talk about it once you see your brother gets this big brand fast and furious you must be like wow this is an adrenaline rush right watching these movies right oh yeah i mean of course that's that's what they're about right explosions cars crazy especially because you were a paramedic when you got the call and heard about what happened to Paul, what was your thought at first? I mean, you just were like, oh, my gosh, why wasn't I there, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, utter disbelief. What I was being told when I, I mean, I was actually, I mean, the worst happened. I just spoken with him on the phone two hours before the accident, and uh, I couldn't believe it. Um you know, I, my mom, it destroyed me, you know, and it, and it was, it was torture being so far away from home with me. And so Cody, from that point on, moving on, uh, uh, you, uh, when did you decide you want to take on your brother's mission at reach, reach out worldwide? Well, um, you know, I, I'd always had plans to, uh, to volunteer with the organization, once uh, I had finished school uh, and had become a paramedic, uh, I was uh, own. That's something that I expected for. So there, you know, it was it was kind of uncertain as to what was going to happen with the organization. And I, with my best and skills to bring to the table to to continue his legacy, and I was just I was compelled to to do so. Um, I'm so proud of him for creating. Such a wonderful organization. And, uh, question, I'm Definitely. Absolutely. Something that, that I needed to play a bigger role. Absolutely. I mean, in thinking about disaster relief and how much that's needed, this is something like he's thinking a worldwide perspective. A lot of charities go into, you know, a certain area, a certain part, but the world, especially when you never know when a disaster is going to occur and how much an organization like yours is needed out there and, and, and Paul's for sure. Right. Exactly. Place we can find information on you, Cody, and learn more about you. They feel you know, held to do so. Obviously it's a, you know, it's a very nonprofit. Um, we've got, yeah, we've got, we've got shirts and merchandise that also goes towards the organization. Uh, and also our Facebook page to reach out worldwide. Uh, that's the most up-to-date information as to what we're involved in, what employment we have on the and what uh, we're currently monitoring. Awesome. So, again, reach out worldwide uh, for information. Go to the Facebook page. Check out all those different things for sure, Cody. And uh, we can follow you on Twitter as well. well Cody, thanks for calling. Uh, when uh, I uh, Maybe we'll, we'll definitely connect another time. Uh, safe travels. Great work working you're doing in Australia and then on to Hong Kong. Thanks for calling and take care. Yeah, take care. Thanks. All right, thanks. Bye. You're l- listening to the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And I'm excited to welcome the program Juan Antonio from Fox TV's Empire. Hey, Hey, Juan, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Juan. Uh, you know, you got to be blown away to be part of this crew, right? <laughs> An empire. You, when you got the yeah. audition and said, and they called you in, you're probably like, holy cow, this is such an interesting show. Yeah, yeah it's a great show. It involves music, pop culture, drama, more drama, and a little more drama. <laughs> So, so, so much drama. And, you know, and I think that it's really cool about it takes place. You see what the music business is like in a certain <laughs> crazy way. And you see specifically enough how entrepreneurs really will do anything it takes uh, to to not just make money, but also win a battle. A lot of it's vendetta wise yeah. in certain ways, too. Right, Juan? Yeah, a lot of that's just being uh, getting to the top and staying on top, and, and what it takes to to actually to maintain that, and, and how that affects family as well. All right, let's kind of go into uh, specifically enough your character and a little bit of a clue what's going to happen Wednesday night. But we're just going to kind of you know go delve right into your character, Juan, and how you were thrown into the mix mm-hmm. of Empire. Good. Yeah, I play Philip Barrett, and he's a uh, PTSD counselor, and he, he comes on board to actually help Jamal on his road to recovery. And in, and in that, kind of... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, Juan. Oh, and in that comes, you know, they form a chemistry in a relationship, and, 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 and just the nature of the show, drama comes along with that, because there's already... There, it becomes a love triangle, in a way. And and that's interesting when you talk about the the, the love triangle. But then the, this character of PTSD very interests me tremendously, Juan, because of how many people are suffering mm-hmm. through this and how our, um you know our military and and different things. What did you do to kind of study that role to understand a little bit about PTSD and stuff from what not just hearing in the news, but more learning more and more about the groups and stuff like that in this role. Yeah, absolutely. I got to do my own extensive research, and and I learned that more people than not actually suffer through it and actually don't know that they they suffer with it. And, you know, it's it can be emotional, it can be physical, it can be you know, it it, it can be caused by a car accident, and then you you suffer from never ever really wanting to drive the car again because you never want to go through that experience, and you always replay that experience and think it's going to happen again. And so more people did not actually associate with it. And so it was a learning experience. And I got to, to learn. I always learn a little bit more about myself and, and the human condition when researching a role like this. And, and, and that, that's, that's definitely. And to know that how many people are suffering it and thinking of our military vets, but other people uh, suffer from PTSD as well, Juan. And that's something for people to, under, to kind of understand when there's a support group. It's not just the military. There are other people that suffer from this, right? Absolutely. That is not just the military. The military is huge because of the, the direct, you know, contact that they come, you know, with these tragedies and, and these experiences that are just very far stretched from day to day life. But even the people that are going through these with the day to day life, like I said, it could also be an emotional. If something emotional can happen to you, losing a close one. And, and not really recovering or coping properly with it or reaching out and talking to people. So it, we actually did a great job of showing, you know, that you do go through therapy and it's okay to go through therapy. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a really great thing. So hopefully more people can actually, you know, subconsciously or consciously learn and the help, help is there. We look at, uh, brain diseases, mental illness, especially what, what just happened in Cleveland, uh, Juan, and we just have to, people need to get help. I hope that this part, because so many people love Empire, your character gets more and more people to say, hey, I'm going to reach out and get help. If, regardless, you have PTSD, depression, bipolar, uh, you know, any type, alcohols, anything, go and get the help needed so that 
tragedies like the one in Cleveland won't happen or, you know, certain other types of situations that have happened because of the person just kind of losing their, their, their self-control. They just, there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And I think that, you know, we all can do a little part in, in conversating and, and making topics a little bit more known and not so taboo, you know, if you will, or, or suppressing the emotions and things that happen as well. It's, it's, it's okay. We're all, we're at the end of the day, everybody's going through something. Yes. Everybody's going through something and the better you can relate and talk to and, and, and find, you know, more people that are going through your, have gone through your experience is, is a great way of getting help is finding someone that has gone through it and maybe what they did, maybe the steps that they've taken. What they've done and what steps they have taken. So what do you think of working with the cast? What do you, how, how have you gotten along so far and filming with them and stuff? Oh man, the cast has been amazing. It was such a warm welcome to the cast. And, and these are giants. These are giants in the business. These are large personalities. These people that have, you know, won accolades for, for, for their work. And so just to be, associated with them and get to spend some time and have conversations with them on and off set. It's, it's been a real treat for me and an experience, a uh, very humbling experience and a very motivating experience at the same time. Can you give us a little preview of Wednesday night, something to tell what you're, what's going to happen with your character, at least a little, like uh, just a quick snapshot preview for Wednesday night. At 9 p.m. Well, we, yeah. we, we've already seen up, up to this point that, you know, the the explosion has happened between this triangle. And so, you know, there's going to be a follow-up to that. And there's always going to be a little bit of, uh, you know, surprises in there for you as well with the show. <laughs> <laughs> you got to stay tuned. Tune in Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern to Fox TV's Empire. And Juan, where can we find information on you? People can follow you. I'm sure you're you're tweeting and doing certain things, uh, especially with the cast for this show, because it's gotta be it's blowing up. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely follow me at Juan Antonio. That's on Instagram and Twitter. And just stay tuned to, to what's coming. And I always dish out great insight on there and, and some fun moments as well. I love the storylines of what Empire does. They they really put in some real-life things in between the chaos. And that's great because then you're going to at least educate people and show other people other situations not just like okay it's just gonna be violence and 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 drama but learn something and i'm glad that your character is part of this because i think that really you are needed out there uh to speak about ptsd and also uh mental health issues so i appreciate you calling one and best of luck oh thanks so much thanks for having me all right take care see ya all right bye-bye have a good one you too bye-bye you're listening to neil haley's show and we'll be back in just a moment Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And I am just a gigantic basketball fan, huge basketball fan, and you don't get the opportunity always to talk to an NBA champion and an NCAA champion. Uh, that doesn't normally happen, so I'm excited to welcome the program former NC, uh, former NBA and NCAA champion Derek Anderson. Derek, thanks for calling. How are you? I am great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Derek. So let's talk about this journey of winning that NCAA title, uh, especially when you had to transfer from one school to the next to Kentucky and then winning it. It must have been just an amazing experience. Yeah, it was one of those things that you uh, you always question sometimes when you leave a certain situation, uh, especially when you, you are almost forced in that place. And you kind of want to make sure that you make the right decisions, but you never know until after the outcome. If I wouldn't have won a championship, it would been different thoughts. But when you do actually transfer and you win a championship, man, the, the, the emotions, the, the gratitude, the the decision-making to make you feel like you, you're smart in what you thought. <laughs> Yeah, it starts, yeah. To, it starts the show, and uh, it was just great. It was a great feeling to, to to be able to do that. One of the greatest moments of my life. And how did that feel, especially you? You look at specifically enough how North Carolina finally won after they had that greatest disappointment. Mm-hmm. When you sit there and know you're a champion, mm-hmm. and we're just talking about NCAA. All the hard work you've put in your whole career, getting to this point of wanting to be a champion. 
Right. Yeah, it meant a lot. I think uh, from anybody who's ever played a sport, you always want to win. You know, you can win a game in a pickup game. Exactly. You'll feel good. Yeah. You lose, you'll feel bad. You know what I mean? But then when you get to the end and you're like the number one, like there's 300 plus schools in the world. It's your number one out of that. And that's like, you know, it's just something that you can't really explain. It's one of those moments that you'll have a, a feeling about every time you speak on it. Like now I'm, I'm remembering the whole moment, the celebration, the feeling. Uh, my friends died. I, I was holding the, the number one up and all of my teammates jumped on me. And it was just like one of those moments you're just like, God, I wish I could live this every day. You know, so the moment when you won, it was just uh, amazing. But now as the older you get, the more the more special it seems. And Derek, you played for a lot of NBA, I mean, a, a handful of NBA teams. And I think that's also why we see this flexibility of what your goals and dreams are now. And we're going to get to that. But that's what I, I see specifically enough to have an NBA career regardless of what draft pick you are, you really have to be a team player and being able to work in a system and work with the coaches and the, and the staff and the general manager, right? It's such an important part of staying in the NBA for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Well, the best thing about that, the the hardest thing about that is the uh, business side. Cause back in the day, people didn't get traded like that. Like on the nineties and the two thousands, it, General manager who had never played basketball, who had never been in the game, they just trading based upon numbers, based upon fits, what they think, but they don't understand the dynamics of a team. So they were making decisions that weren't really, uh, they were hard for players. If you look at a lot of guys, players, some teams, they, they, they struggle on other teams and they go to another team to flourish. And that's because the coach, because uh, the general manager keeps the teammates around them. You can't expect me to have a, a great defensive team if I don't have any good defensive players. So it's just, it's just one of those things. The business side was really tough to deal with, but the game, really, I love the game so much that I sacrificed, and, and everyone has to sacrifice at some point. Very few get to be superstars and, and actually do whatever they want at any point in time. Even Jordan had to learn to trust his teammates and pass the ball. Kobe had to learn to do that. Right. Uh, everyone had to get to a certain point and learn and adjust. So uh, it was just part of the process, and that's the only way you can last if you learn to adjust, as well as coaches learn to adjust. Great coaches make adjustments in any situation. And you and you learned also from before that time, before the, all the trades were happening, how guys weren't lasting in the NBA, and they went on to over, work play overseas because of just the system. So it's kind of changed in so many ways with the longer term contracts, and then trading, and and the whole the whole process. So your memories in the NBA, what would you say was your big greatest? member in the NBA next to winning the NBA title. What would you say, Derek? Is that memory Well I think the first yeah. the the first time I played against Michael George, you know, it was like I was I was I was able to play against someone I looked up to as a as a kid as far as an athlete and just was like, you know what, I feel like I've I've earned the right to be here. Like I started a game. I didn't feel like I didn't deserve it. I felt like I earned it. I deserved it because I worked hard for it. It wasn't like that I was given opportunity. I wasn't just blessed with uh, the, the means to be the best player in my city and the state. And for me, when I first played him my rookie year, it was just like, wow, I'm here. You know, and I think that's when I've realized that I've worked really hard to get to a certain point. Because if you're playing against one of the greatest players that ever played a game, obviously you've done something to even get to that moment. So I, I recognize that and I, and I cherish that moment. Wow. I wouldn't have thought of that, especially. And how did you play against him when you got the opportunity to go one-on-one with him in certain ways or guarding? I had 23 yeah. points and I had, well, I had 23 points and we won the game. But the second time, he had like 30 in the second half and we lost. So <laughs> the first game was great. The first game I had a great time. I got to play. Uh, so I, I was excited. I had a good game and. And it was one of those one of those things you're like, hey, I did my job, you know. But then you realize the NBA is like the next game, next day. So that one game doesn't signify your career. So, but it was it was a good moment for us. And uh, and and what would what do you think of Michael Derek in so many ways of how he plays the game? How intense is he on the court? Well, he was he was always intense, but I caught him in his later years in '97, and uh, he was he was competitive, but he wasn't like trying to score the whole game. Like you can tell he had kind of calmed down and let me get my teammates involved in case it's a close game. I need to get the shot or get the ball. He was kind of managing himself and doing it. He still played hard, but he was just kind of, from what I've seen in tapes and other games, I knew he wasn't, he wasn't like in the same, uh, the kill mode, if you will, uh, the entire game. But you can tell when the playoffs came, he was back in that mode. I guess he had learned to, 
to maximize his, his moments and movements. So, but I remember I remember that vividly. He was just hand picking and choosing where his time was. He was passing the ball a lot when I had him too. I was guarding. I was like, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a good thing. Uh, your career, you had seven thousand three hundred fifty-seven points. You had one thousand nine hundred eighty eight rebounds and 2,083 assists. So not many people can say they put up those kind of numbers in a career and, and especially spanned from the days of the Cleveland Cavaliers to the Charlotte Bobcats at the end. Uh, so that's got to be something that is re- really makes you feel good because a lot of guys that come as some first round draft picks, if they didn't splash as the greatest superstar ever, a lot of times they just didn't last in the league. And you continued to stay in the league and put up decent and good numbers and uh, play with some unbelievable talent, right? Yeah, well, the thing about the NBA, the only difference that separates the Hall of Famer and a superstar is the green light. And when you look at it, if I would have got to shoot the ball five times a quarter, I could at least make two of those. I could average five points a quarter in my entire career if I wanted to. But I, I took the road of passing it, being unselfish. Because I played, like you said, I played with some great players. I averaged like 17 and 18 back-to-back year. Well, uh, 17 and uh, L.A. Clippers and like 15 or something at the San Antonio Spurs. And, and I had to share the ball. And I wouldn't play the Portland Trailblazers with Rasheed Wallace, Damon Stoudemire, Scotty Pippen. So I never got the opportunity to be a one-man show, which I could have put up a lot more numbers. I could have had a lot more things happen if I was a point guard, which I grew up being my entire life, but I'm six, five and I, I went move to the two guard. And, and then like now kids are shooting like 10 to 15, three. Exactly. I'm like, you, didn't sh- you know what I mean? Like you don't shoot that many threes a game. It's everybody else is on a team. So I couldn't have shot 10 threes. And I had Rasheed Wallace and Damon thought of my shoot three. It just didn't work like that with us. So, I sacrificed, and those numbers that you, you you said, I didn't even know them because I played the game to play it the right way. So if I knew that I, I had to get my teammate was open, throw him the ball. If I knew a mismatch, get him the ball. <laughs> I wasn't worrying about just getting 20 and 20 shots a game, and I think that's the difference in my career. If I would look at it now, and I had a lot of former players say, if you would have just shot more, you would have probably been one of, the, one of the best players in the league. It's like when you look at some of the guys who just shoot it, like I could dribble, shoot, dunk, uh, jump like I can do everything that everyone else did but my game wasn't uh I wasn't aggressive enough on on the end of being selfish enough to me and I think that's where my numbers fell off and I I played hard and I think that's why a lot of teams kept me coming and playing on a team they say well he's smart and he'll play hard he's a team player and that's what I really value I got to taste the championships in uh in middle school I won two middle school two district high school championships two and then I won college I just got a taste of success and I always wanted that, so I just said, let me sacrifice the championships, and I got them. And you got them, and you got the NBA title as well. So life after basketball, the experience of playing with all these organizations, and then what to do afterwards. Uh, I noticed, again, I was reading an article, how you define yourself, and it's very interesting, life after basketball, because you really are making it fun for yourself and being the brand, not okay, and really uh, trying different things. So tell us how you kind of, once you retired, how you figured out what life after basketball would be for you. Well, for me, I think everyone needs to know what they're good at. Like, if I'm like, we can even stick to sports. If I'm a point guard and I'm good at, at uh, passing and uh, you know playing defense, that's what I would do most of the game. I wouldn't go around shooting a bunch of threes if I'm not good at that. So for me, it was I I love the game of basketball. I'm training and teaching, but I'm also a person that that can generate peace and kindness when I walk in the room. You know, I was blessed to be able to smile and 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 have a character where. Everyone's like, you know what? This person is is kind, is nice, and I can help other people be that way. And I felt like once I found my true purpose in life, basketball was just a stepping stone for me to get to where I need to be, and that was to help other people. You know, and it, and I think that that's been something we all have. Like you, what you're doing is a passion, and you're good at it, so therefore you're able to help other people. <laughs> well, thank you, Dad. Now what you're doing yeah. is letting someone else, because someone's going to hear this, and someone's going to uh, feel a certain way. And they're gonna, you're gonna help them. Like you can help one person a day. You've made a big change in the world. You're not, you're not obligated to help millions. You're obligated to help one. And if you're doing that, then you're being successful, and you're staying in your lane, and you're knowing your purpose, and you do a purpose with a passion. So, tell us what's going on with you. I guess helping others is a key part of your mission. So, tell us what's going on with you now, Derek. 
more like just go around and just try to change the character. Everybody wants to throw money at all these problems that we have in the world, especially with our young kids. And if you don't change the character, you won't change their uh, the, uh, the community. So for me, I just go around and, and teach them. I don't just talk to them. I have them act things out and teach them how to become adults. I make them put in their positions like, well, if you're a police officer and you have two guys fighting, what would you do? I have to break it up. If they pull a gun, what would you do? I have to pull a gun. It's like, well, that's what a police officer has to do. And I think we have to do that with our children. You do, you, your parents teach them, hey, if, if you keep acting up, you know, what is it? If you're a parent, what would you do? If you're a school teacher, what would you do? So I'm putting the kids in leadership roles where they have to make the decision. So when they see those decisions happening, they'll understand why. We keep throwing money and say, well, hey, give them a program, after-school program, but it never changes their, their character. They never see what real life's about to give them. So for me, if we can give them real-life issues, they'll be able to be uh, better prepared for them when they do happen, and they'll make better decisions. So that's what I do. It's called Act of Kindness, and it's my stamina foundation. And we just go around the world and the countries and uh, just teach those programs. And I'm building one in my hometown, Louisville, Kentucky, and I can't wait to get that going. And uh, that's what we'll do, put it in school systems as well. Change the character and you'll change the community. I love it because, again, you can't go in there and just say, hey, I'm just a figurehead and go ahead you know, uh, have everyone else run this and we're going to go and show up and have an after school program, but you don't have an, you don't have a means to end the end. You need to have an end result yeah. that you want to have. If you don't have yeah. that end result, Derek, you're just, you're just, you're just, you're just flying by the seat of your pants saying you think you're making a difference and yet you want that difference. So where can people find information, Derek, on the best way to learn about what you're doing with your foundational work and your speaking engagements and all those different things? Where can we go? Well, you can go to staminafd.com, stamina, F as a foundation, D as a Derek.com, and uh, that's what shows everything. You know, I was abandoned by my parents at 11, but that doesn't mean everyone's story is going to be the same. You know, I never drank, never smoked, never did drugs, never sold drugs, but everyone's story is not the same. We have to reach this generation in a way that we can get them there. So my foundation, if they go to the site, they'll see everything that we're doing. If, if someone gets us paint, the kids paint the rooms. You know, we do everything together. The kids earn their earn their, their value in life, and, and that's what they should do. So I'm excited to, to get this foundation going and get my programs up. And what it sounds like, Derek, also is that you have a passion that you're you're paying it forward for what you were able to accomplish in your life, having a great NBA career, uh, getting a college degree. You want to give back to the community and make sure that there's going to be those success stories in your foundation. That that's what it seems like for sure, and that that's what you want to do. Absolutely. All right, well, well, Derek, thanks for calling. Uh, best of luck, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. And I didn't think I was going to have a conversation about Michael Jordan, but I guess, Derek, you have to go find that <laughs> that that and put it up on YouTube when you were lighting him up. I wonder if you ever get that uh, that video. That would be the I video. Wish. That was the, that, yeah, that was <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you never know. There could be somebody out there that has it. All right, well, thank. All right, thanks, Derek, for calling. Appreciate it. Okay, see you. All right, buddy, All right YouTube. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TittleTitter, and NeilHaley.com. I'm excited to welcome the program, Greg Gunberg. We know him all from NBC's Heroes, Geeking Out, uh, his books, Star Wars, Star Trek. Greg, thanks for calling. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I really it. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely, Greg. Do you know what I'm thinking right now? <laughs> yes, and I love you, too. <laughs> <laughs> the the mind-reading police officer from Heroes. I, that is a role that I, I will never live down, and I'm so thrilled I got to play, man. I get, I get that all the time. People come up to me and they're like, what am I thinking? And I either tell them, I love you, too. Or I, or I point somewhere and I go, oh, the bathroom's over there. <laughs> that's that's isn't it hilarious, Greg? Because you're like saying to yourself, uh, a character like that. Because if we could read people's minds and then also take them into a new world, how much can control control could we have? It's one of the most villainous characters or superhero characters ever created, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, people ask me all the time, they're like, if you could have chosen any character to play, 
with a superpower, what would it be? And I said, I, I would never change, you know, being able to have a mind-reading power. I mean, because it, it is the most, and, and we showed that in uh, Heroes Reborn. I came back, and I was killing people left and right. I mean, you can really control the world if you can control people's minds. So I, I was thrilled about playing that character, and I play it again in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, I hope at one point in time Heroes comes back. I'm the biggest Heroes geek in the world, the, especially the original Heroes, Hero Nakamura and all of them. It just was absolutely amazing. And some of the people that Thanks, careers man. just started off of that show, oh, my gosh, look what they're doing now, Greg. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all have we used it as a springboard for the stuff that we're doing. And, uh, I mean, recently, look at Milo. He's killing it on um, – you know, his show, um, and, 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 you know, Adrian Pazdar, is, is, everybody's doing well. Um, Hayden, obviously, uh, we're, all of us, we're all doing various things that we want to do because of the success of Heroes. Um, you know, I, I'm doing this documentary right now, um, and it's called uh, Joyrider, and it's on Kickstarter, and we're, we're doing really well. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly inspiring story that, I, that has to be told. I, I um, it's about a, a guy named Andre Kylik who lost his leg in a train accident uh, years ago and became this incredible para-athlete, and he, he bikes using his hands. So he's a hand cyclist, um, and, uh, but he's doing this thing called the Race Across America, 3,000 miles from coast to coast in under 12 days. And wow. it, it, we, we're, we're, we're calling it Joyrider. And we need to reach our goal on Kickstarter to be able to document this properly um, as he does the race in June. So I, I, I urge people to go to Kickstarter and search Joyrider, check out the, the trailer, and give whatever you can to support this because it truly is a story that needs to be told. So, Greg, what made you decide to be part of this docu- to do this documentary and stuff? Tell us the story of how that happened. Well, there's uh, the two actresses involved. Uh, one of them is Claire Kramer, who I starred in a movie called Big Ass Spider with, and we've become very close. And then a, a girl, uh, an actress named Bianca Kylik, who is Andre's sister. Bianca was on Rules of Engagement. She's a big actress. They, the two of them met on a movie called Bring It On. Claire went on to do Buffy and all these other things. Anyway, they, they told me that Andre is doing this race. And he's tried to qualify for four years, and, and three years he hadn't qualified. You have to really be in top shape. And, and we're talking about these are not para-athletes. This is a race for able-legged, able-bodied people, and half of the participants in the race drop out in the middle of the race because it's so grueling. It's, it's riding, it's pedaling for, you know, uh, for uh, 15 hours, sleeping for an hour, and then pedaling for a grueling race you can imagine. He's doing it wow. without legs. First time anyone has solo uh, hand cycled across the country like this in a race like this. And he's so incredibly inspiring. And I, th- I-, I thought, you know what, whatever it takes, we're shooting this documentary. And I want to do it right. We, and they, uh, Pablo Durano, this amazing Academy Award winning cinematographer, is covering it. And if you check out the, the trailer, you'll see how beautiful it- it's shot, how inspiring Andre is. And the dude is hilarious. And and awesome, and just tough as nails, and it's just a great story. It's going to be an incredible documentary, and we're, we're getting close to our goal. I, I just encourage everyone to go there and support this documentary because it's going to be a great, it's really going to be something, a once-in-a-lifetime experience for everyone involved. It'll make us wake up the next day thankful for what we have, Greg, right? And also know that we can persevere through tasks, yeah. right? That's exactly it. It's, it's, it's not just, oh, man, I thought I had it tough. I mean, there is that element to it, but he is so inspiring. I mean, it, it, you go, wait a minute. I can do whatever the hell I want to do in my life, but this guy is doing this. You know, it's just one of those things. You can't, you know, look at any obstacle or any challenge or any, um, anything that you've always wanted to do in your life and, and look at it the same way again when you see a guy like this who's taking on such an astronomical um, challenge, you know, to, to somebody who has legs. This guy has no legs. He's, he's doing it all with upper body strength. No one has ever solo hand cycled across the country, let alone in 12 days. Um, and I'm going to be riding in a comfy, cozy Winnebago uh, <laughs> camper following him 
and, and, and documenting every agonizing, every successful moment. And it's his sister and him and Claire. Wow. You know, they're, they're directing this and we're producing it. It's just going to be amazing. And I want everybody to be a part of it because it's so inspiring. Fantastic. You got your, again, we could get Dream Jumper book one also and Dream Jumper book two. And also you have an epilepsy telethon May 6th, eight hours. So yeah. uh, live. Yeah. And, and I have a, I tutor a family. I have a tutoring and consulting company and I work with a, with a child with epilepsy and it's, it's very, very tough for the family. So uh, that's, that's a tremendous thing you're doing on May 6th. Thank you. That's, you know, that's one of the things that got me involved in Joyrider was seeing how my son, who, you know, is, is one of the people that's living well with epilepsy, if you have the right medication, and, everything. and this great company, Synovian, has, is behind the Epilepsy Foundation uh, and the telethon that we do every year. And so I look at something like that and I go, these people are inspiring. My son is inspiring. Like, I, I just take so much from what, the, what, what somebody goes through who has something they have to deal with. And yet they're living a, a, an extraordinary life. And Andre's an example of it. And I think Joyrider is going to—it's going to inspire more than just athletes. It's going to inspire anybody who uh, has something that, that that they have. And we all have something, you know. So I I, um, I appreciate you know having me on the show, man. It's something. I hope everybody goes to Kickstarter, searches Joyrider, and gets behind this campaign. All right, Greg. Well, thanks for calling. We all can follow you on social media everywhere. Good talking to you. Best of luck, and I know you got to get to your next person. Take care, man. See ya. Yeah, you okay. too. Bye. Thank you. All right. See ya. You're, you're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TittleTutor, and NeilHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program Jeff Stoltz of Unforgettable. Jeff, thanks for calling. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. How are you doing? Fantastic. You know what, Jeff? This movie really spooks me. <laughs> I saw the trailer. My wife and I were watching it last week uh, while we were, you know, going through uh, our DVR times on Saturdays. And I said to my wife, I said, I guarantee somehow I might end up interviewing someone from that film. And lo and behold, I did. Uh, but (laughs) this is something that definitely will keep you on the edge of your seat. Won't it, Jeff? Yeah, this is, uh, this is the kind of movie that I won't see because I'm afraid of them. Um, it's a bit of a throwback kind of eighties, nineties thriller, fatal attraction, basic instinct, a couple of really powerful, sexy women. I get kind of thrown in between them and I'm just like, I'm, I'm just trying to hold on. Uh, hold on for the ride. Uh, it's fun. It's the kind of movie I think the, the people that have been seeing it, screening it, say things like, you know, they're they're talking to the screen, they're yelling at the characters. Those, it's um, it's fun. I think it's going to pe- get people on the edge of their seat, get them talking, and uh, give them a little thrill. Uh, it definitely seems like they'll they'll give them a thrill. Tell us about your character, Jeff. Well, I play a, play a Catherine Heigl's um, ex-husband. We share a daughter together, and then I. Uh, I meet and fall in love with Rosario Dawson's character, and you know, just like every dude, I think I can handle um, more than I can handle, and I, I, I try to merge those worlds together, and things kind of uh, just quickly derail. It's uh, quite the, it's quite a ride, and you know, I'm just trying not to screw up things and be a good dad and uh, cultivate a relationship with Rosario. He's, he's certainly kind of uh, in the, uh, in that the old uh, between a rock and a hard place. It's fun. It's uh, I think it's uh, it's uh, interesting. I think people watch it and like they feel bad for this guy, man. People relate to him. You know, and and, this, and I I just can't believe he would think to do that, right, Jeff? Probably when you're reading the script, saying, "What are you doing? Taking putting your ex-wife involved with a uh, an, another an, another girlfriend and the child, and thinking that there could be some not as much as the chaos." ends up happening in this film, but what was he thinking? I guess he was just thinking everything yeah. it could be great. Uh, you hope that your ex isn't going to turn into a crazy, crazy woman, crazy person. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> and I think what snaps that character is the fact that you guys were all together. I can, I couldn't imagine one of my ex-girlfriends, uh, and my wife 
and my children living under the same roof for one day or two days and what the jealousy that could happen between women. But I guess you will find out in the film why the two characters, why your, your ex just gets so jealous. What's the reason? I guess no one can get over you, right, Jeff? That's what it is, right? Yeah, I think that's really what it comes down to, man. I think it's all about me. You're right. Appreciate you pointing that out. Thank you. <laughs> and I was checking out, you know, it's kind of funny. What do you think of yourself? Did you always, did you think that you would kind of be this kind of heartthrob kind of film guy and TV guy? Did you think when you started acting that this would happen? Oh, nah, man. I just, you know, when you start acting, particularly a guy that didn't have a clue what he was doing, I'm still just barely figuring it out. I'm just, um, I feel, uh, I feel grateful to keep working and, get some opportunities to work with really talented, awesome people. And if they want to hire me to be a heartthrob or uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it, I'm, I'm happy to show up and give it my best. Um, yeah, it's it's funny how that how, how that works. You kind of just get put into a category and you run with it. So I'll take it. Exactly. And what did you think of working with the cast? Did you enjoy the, the cast in, in, the, in filming this? Yeah, I really did. You know, I mean, if you think about it, like Catherine Heigl and Rosario Dawson, they've been they've been around and they've been doing this for years and years, much longer than I have. They both started working when they were 12 or 13 years old, something like that. And you know, so I was a fan of these women before I actually got a chance to meet them and work with them. So I kind of went into that, you know, I was, a, was all enthusiastic and excited, and I'm like, you know, this is going to be great. And then then you get there and you're like, wait, wait a second, man, I gotta I gotta bring it. I gotta bring my A game. These are these are old pros, um, but they're you know, they're just such solid people. And, um, and Catherine really it was an interesting dynamic because of her character. I mean, she was playing a very rigid kind of scary, turned out to be a little scarier than and kind of crazy um, character. So she had to kind of she wore that. She had to really live in that character. Uh, so our dynamic on set was was interesting because she stayed in that character most of the time. You can't. That's a that's a lot of energy that goes into that and to be able to, you know, she kind of had to, she kind of had to wear it and live in that space on the other side. So I didn't really like being around her till the end of the day until she took off her, until she put, uh, put Tessa to bed for the night. Then I could hang out with her and joke with her and all that. But during the day, I just kind of kept myself away from her just like in real life. I think I would have. Um, but then Rosario, like, you know, half of that, the movie for us was just a love story and getting to know each other and sex and sexy time and, um, flirty. And it was, uh, yeah, so that one was fun. That was a, a lot more fun than getting yelled at by the ex-wife. <laughs> you know, when you talk about Catherine and, and Tessa, I guess you're going to make sure if you meet a Tessa in the bar or something, you're going to run away, right? <laughs> nope, I don't do I don't do Tessas. I don't do uh, I don't and I don't do crazy. I learned from this movie. <laughs> yeah. So you'll be watching out when certain people are just like when you start seeing any of the signs the Tessa has when you're hanging out with women, you're like, okay, I'm running away. I'm gone. I'm out. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Just that, just that look. Now I, now I see that look coming and I, I make myself scarce. You know, what's funny is when you talk about Catherine uh, and, and her character is that she played that character all the time. Have you seen that since you've acted that some people just love to live in character throughout the, the filming or, uh, or TV shoot or whatever? That that's they just yeah, you know, saying that you know I think I I think that some roles call for that a lot more than others like you know I I I certainly didn't have to work hard to find Rosario Dawson attractive I didn't have to work hard to um, fall in love with the girl that plays my daughter I mean I, that was instant chemistry and she's beautiful and charming and just a, such a sweet little girl that that was that's a lot easier for me to bring uh, that to, to the character than it is for somebody who's not mean, who's not crazy, who's not any of those things to, to build that and to uh, prepare for that. So, you know, and sometimes that, um, you know, it's not just, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just thinking that it's not just acting. It's like, you know, it was a, it was a very specific wardrobe choice. It was a hair choice. It was the way she carried herself, the, her facial expressions. It was her posture, the way she stood. So that, um, yeah, you know, sometimes, so that's what I mean. Like it was, 
you know, once she kind of put Tessa on every morning, um, you kind of, you kind of live in that, you live in that for the day. So, you know, between takes, you know, Rosario Dawson and I and Isabella, the girl that played our, our daughter are like, you know, we're, we're joking and high-fiving and over at the craft service table, stealing free food. And, and, uh, Catherine would stay to herself and, and, um, you know, for the most part and try to try to stay in that character. So, you know, we, we, out of respect for that, you don't go over there and try to make, you know, fart jokes with her when she's trying to, uh, she's trying to stay in character. So yeah, it's a, I got a lot of respect for that. It's a lot of effort and it's a lot of work. Um, and she really pulled it off. I was uh, really impressed and it was fun to be around. Okay, so Unforgettable is in theaters nationwide on April 21st, Friday, April 21st. Where's the best place we can find information on you, Jeff? Where can we go? Are you on Twitter and stuff that people can follow you and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just give me my, I'll give you my mom's number. You call her and she'll uh, she'll tell you everything uh, she wants you to know about me. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, I I I don't do. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I I do a lot of. Uh, I'm a little bit more of an Instagram guy. It's just I think it's just my name. All right, it's Jeff M. Stoltz. But uh, you'll if you if you follow me, you're just going to get pictures of uh, pictures of my dog mostly. <laughs> no, I thought you were going to take a bunch of selfies. You seem like a selfie guy, man. <laughs> oh man, I, I, I can't. I, I've never been able to figure that out. Like I can't. I'm just. I don't think I'm that interesting, so I'm not going to bore anybody with a bunch of stupid selfies of myself. Also, I don't want to see my. I don't want to see myself. I live with myself. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks for calling. Best of luck and good luck next Friday. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. See ya. Okay. See ya. All right. Bye bye. You're uh, listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com, and big news coming. Uh, but let the amazing interviews continue. And I love working with Triumph Books. I keep telling you this. I mean, it's a dream come true to talk sports every week. And Triumph brings the greatest authors that uh, just the conversations are phenomenal. So thank you again, Triumph Books. I'm excited to welcome the program author Larry Miller, author of Ben Hogan's Secret fundamental what he never told the world larry thanks for calling how are you well great great to be with you and your listening audience neil thank you oh, i'm excited to chat with you but i did not know you were a professional golfer so kind of explain a little bit about your background and then we'll get right into the why you wrote the book oh gee i went the usual route i uh of course started playing very young about seven and and uh through high school and Got a scholarship to college and played college golf, and then uh, turned pro. and And I played uh, I played on the PGA Tour for three and a half years, uh, off and on, the last year and a half. Um, and then I became a teacher, and mainly uh, mainly had a career in teaching. I did play some on the senior tour. I played in the U.S. Senior Open in '09 at Crooked Stick. That's uh, that's the course where John Daly won the PGA and okay. got his career kick-started. Um, that was my last big event. Uh, my best finish on the tour was tied for third at the Magnolia Classic. But mainly I've been a teacher, and then I started writing. I have a degree in journalism and psychology, and so I was able to start writing about the game from having been inside the ropes. Wow. And uh, so that kind of... Uh, you know that kind of went well, and and lent, you know gave me a real inside view of uh, of all the great players and having actually played with them and and out there. So being able to write about it from that perspective, uh, you know, was very interesting. And and most of my books have been either motivational or instructional uh, until this book, and so that leads us to where we are. So why Ben Hogan? Were you asked to write this? Why Ben? Well, no, my teacher, before I went on the tour, my teacher for three years was Tommy Bolt. Okay. Uh, Tommy Bolt was, in his era, was one of the best players in the world. He won the U.S. Open at, at Southern Hills in Tulsa uh, in 1958. And Tommy was my teacher for three years, and Ben Hogan was his teacher. And so Tommy shared with me all the things he learned from Hogan, especially what Hogan considered the secret of the golf swing. And so... Uh, I was able to write about uh, write about exactly what Hogan found, and it's interesting that since the uh, Life magazine article in 1955, 
That's over six decades ago, where Hogan proclaimed that he had a secret and he was going to reveal it to the world. Well, you know, what he was pointing out, and in, in, in all, all through these six decades, every great teacher and player had speculated on what Hogan's secret might be. And uh, they're all different, interestingly. Every opinion is different, but they're all correct. But what those things are are simply features of his golf swing, pointing out a feature. I could take uh, anybody's swing and point out several features of their swing and say, look, when they hit a good shot, there's their secret. But what Hogan found was something much more basic, much more fundamental than that. He found a basic geometry of the golf swing, and he only shared it with Ken Venturi and Tommy Bolt, who were his two main protégés while he was still playing. So it, during my three years with Tommy, he eventually uh, he eventually entrusted me with what Hogan had found. And so the stipulation was, though, that you could not write about it or talk about it at all while the principles were still alive because Hogan was afraid that it would be distorted or misunderstood and do more harm than good. Right. But Tommy told, I visited Tommy four months before he passed away up in Arkansas. And he told me, he said, look, when everybody's gone and you think you can do justice to this and put it out there accurately so that it will help the average player, go ahead and do it and feel free. And I still didn't think much about it until all these books started appearing about Ben Hogan by Chris Shetter, an LPGA player, by Tim Scott, who worked for the Hogan Company. Uh, Mike Tolls wrote a great book, all speculating. And finally, I said, you know, the time is right. You know, it's time to put an end to the 60-plus years of speculation. I'm going to put it out there exactly what Hogan found that Tommy shared with me. And so that's how it came about. And, um, and I think, I think it's going to just really, really tremendously help all the players out there. A secret that I have you on my show that you can give me a little bit of, uh, an idea to this. Wow. And, and I, and I definitely, uh, uh, something that, uh, I'm sure lots of pro golfers right now, need to read right it's for everyone that golfs needs to read this book but it's every tour player on the tour could benefit from this book uh because you know what hogan was after was after a golf swing that did not rely on timing or compensations or adjustments and very few swings uh if any really match the lines that hogan found he found a basic geometry a structure that if you follow You'll hit the ball exactly where you're aimed, and you'll hit it with power. <laughs> well, a lot of the players, even the top players in the world, have swings that have minor flaws, but they adjust for them and make compensations. And because of the fact that they've played for years and years and hit millions of balls, they're able to replicate those adjustments and compensations pretty consistently. But the point is, they don't always do it. And you'll see the best players in the world when they turn up with a 75 or 76 and right. 10 greens in regulation. See? And it's because their timing was off. Well, Hogan was after a swing that did not rely on timing, that it was so mechanically sound that timing did not enter the equation. And that's what he found with his basic structure. And that's why he averaged over 15 greens around in regulation, whereas the best players on the tour are around 13. So you know, the best best ball strikers in the world are missing four to five greens around, and Hogan missed two or three. So that tells you something right there that he knew something that nobody else knew. And so, yeah, even the best, look at look at Jordan Spieth last yes. year and this year at the Masters, his timing got off the final round. Uh, who knows whether it was pressure or whatever or fatigue or whatever, but his timing got off and he started, you know, missing fairways, missing greens, and the winners, their timing was on, and so they didn't have as many mistakes. But point is, everybody could benefit from tour player to beginner will greatly benefit from from everything in this book, really. And and that's that's very phenomenal. And uh, you got to read the book. It's like I'm not going to, in, in certain ways, Larry say, "Hey, Larry, give me the secrets right now." The people have to just go ahead, go to Triumph Books right 
uh, triumphbooks.com right now and purchase the book or in finer bookstores. But I think it's great to know how many golfers out there uh, will benefit from this. But let's talk about the history of Ben Hogan, if you don't mind. Is that in the book as well? Some of the history of his career or are you more? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the history. What do you, where, where do you rank him all time, Ben? Well, I would rank him, okay, in terms of total golfer, uh, I've got to rank him probably second or third. Uh, Nicholas is unquestionably number one. Uh, I mean, just look at the record. You know, he 18 majors, uh, 19 runner-up finishes, 30-something top threes uh, in majors. This, this is in majors. Uh, he made 73 straight cuts in major tournaments. I mean, he's got records that, Probably, I don't know. May never, may never be be uh, surpassed. Um, and then you know, you talk about Tiger Woods for that stretch, uh, that stretch that he had. He had total right, command right. Of, the, of the of the swing, and so you got to put him in there. Although his, you know, his uh, the length of his of his top play might not have been as long as Nicholas. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.